PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. They can actually use those nerve transmissions to run across DCs. Potentially, we're looking at normalizing many functions, stairs and slopes and walk on even terrain. The improvements that we're seeing in the upper extremity are going to be leaps and bounds over what is currently available for the upper extremity PPT. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast focusing on physical therapy and rehabilitation in the United States military. PTJ editorial board member and U.S. Air Force officer Major John Childs is joined by three physical therapists from the Center for the Intrepid, located at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. This is part one of a two-part series. Part one focuses on rehabilitation research and infrastructure in the U.S. military. Part two will focus on clinical care. These podcast discussions were inspired by the perspective article, Traumatic Brain Injury and Vestibular Pathology as a Comorbidity After Blast Exposure, by Captain Matthew Scherer and Dr. Michael Schubert, published in PTJ's September 2009 issue. And now, our moderator for today's discussion, Major John Childs. Good afternoon. My name is Major John Childs, and I'm a physical therapist in the U.S. Air Force. I'm currently on faculty in the U.S. Army Baylor Doctoral Program in Physical Therapy at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. And just would like to welcome everyone to what I hope will be a very thought-provoking discussion on the implications of the war, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, on the rehabilitation needs in the Department of Defense. Um, we've had dramatic advancements in medicine since Vietnam that have increased the survival rates of our soldiers. We can obviously manage acute bleeding much better than we did in Vietnam. We can rapidly air evacuate wounded soldiers out of theater to get them back to our hospitals, both in the area of operation as well as back to the United States very quickly. And so our survival rates have dramatically increased. But with that, of course, has come the need to address the many debilitating injuries that are now surviving soldiers will face for the remainder of their lives, many of them suffering loss of limbs, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, among many others. And so today, what we really want to do is discuss the bigger picture, the implications of the war on rehabilitation, both from an infrastructure perspective, as well as some of the funding priorities and the research that has been driven as a result of the injuries our wounded warriors have experienced. And so it's really my privilege to have three individuals who are distinguished physical therapists, each of whom play a very essential role in meeting the rehabilitation needs of our soldiers. And I'd like to start by introducing Dr. Rebecca Hooper. Dr. Hooper, it's really good to have you on the call with us. Thank you, John. Dr. Hooper is a physical therapist who had a variety of assignments throughout her military career, which culminated in Dr. Hooper being the 15th chief of the Army Medical Specialist Corps. And for those of you who aren't familiar with military terminology, Dr. Hooper was the head of all the uh, Army occupational therapists, physical therapists, dietitians, and physician assistants around the world. She retired from active duty in 2006 
and then immediately afterwards accepted a position as program manager for the soon-to-be-completed Center for the Intrepid. Today, she supervises the day-to-day operations at the Center for the Intrepid. And then next, we have Lieutenant Colonel Rachel Evans. Rachel, it's good to have you with us on the call. And thank you for inviting me. Colonel Evans is currently assigned as the research director at the Center for the Intrepid. Dr. Evans spent the early part of her career working as a physical therapist in the clinic and developed a special interest in the area of stress fracture. And she continues to participate in many research endeavors through her affiliation with the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine and currently directs both bone health and amputee research efforts for the Department of Defense. And finally, but certainly not least, uh, we have with us Dr. Benjamin Darter. Dr. Darter is a research physical therapist in the military performance lab and also an adjunct professor in the Army Baylor Physical Therapy Program in San Antonio. Over the past 10 years, his clinical and research efforts have been focused on the rehabilitation of individuals with lower extremity amputation. So Dr. Darter, it's good to have you with us as well this afternoon. I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Well, Dr. Hooper, I think we'll start with you, and if you could just tell us about some of the most common injuries that you see at the Center for the Intrepid, as well as some of the bigger picture about how the Center for the Intrepid actually came about in the first place. Sure, Don. What's really important, I think, for everyone to note is that the Center for the Intrepid was actually given to the Army by the American people. It was a gift by the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Fund with over 600,000 donors participating in the fundraising activities. This center is an outpatient advanced rehabilitation center. So although we're housed at Brook Army Medical Center, we look a little bit different because we're in a separate building, and that's because we have all outpatients. The patients have one thing in common, and when you ask what types of patients we see, it's pretty easy to answer. We have patients who have some type of functional limb loss, whether that is actually anatomic limb loss or whether or not it's function loss due to burn injury, due to limb salvage procedures where we're trying not to actually have to amputate the limb, or right now we actually have about seven or eight spinal cord injured patients here going through their paces in advanced outpatient rehabilitation. And Becky, we hear lots of talk about as the war winds down, what is going to be the mission of the Center for the Intrepid in sort of a post-post-war. So what are the long-term plans in the use of the center over the next 15 to 20 years? Interesting question because when we dig into the history of amputation in the military for a very long time, we didn't treat very many amputees at all. They were treated ultimately in the VA system. That has changed since 2003. 2003, Walter Reed stood up the first amputee care program. They started seeing amputees. And in 2005, we started seeing amputees here at Brook Army Medical Center. And then in 2007, they also started seeing amputees out at Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego. The bottom line is once we're out of this conflict, and we all pray that will be sometime soon, there will still be those unfortunate incidents across the Department of Defense where people lose limbs or sustain burn injury or have some kind of trauma that creates functional limb loss. And we feel that the CFI will be that focal point for that care from here on because we have this great brand new 65,000 square foot facility where we can provide the latest and greatest state-of-the-art care. 
Great. Thanks for that. And if you could just speak to some of the administrative challenges you face as a program manager at the CFI. It seems like there's always tours that are ongoing. There's a lot of demand from the public to see a world-renowned facility. And if you could just speak to some of the administrative challenges you face in your role. You absolutely touched on the largest challenge, and the challenge is the interest. But I think that we realize that that is a good thing. The American people are very interested in the care that we're providing to our service members. This year alone, my assistant and I and a few other folks have given tours to over 7,500 individuals to come through the facility, and we only do it at lunchtime at the end of the day, not to interrupt patient care. So you can you can tell that Every day is an adventure in that way. But the other administrative challenges we have are making sure that we have the right mix of providers. We obviously do OT and PT. We have a prosthetics fabrication lab. We have a PA that provides wound care. We have physiatrists who provide all the medical direction. But we've seen the need to add some other providers as well, including behavioral medicine, case management, We've added a clinical pharmacologist to look at our patients coming out of the acute phase of their rehab into the long-term phase of the rehab. What are the requirements for pharmacology in that type of environment? My challenge is making sure that I have the right people in the right place at the right time. Thanks, Becky, for your insight. Um, what I'd like to do now is sort of shift to some of the research implications related to the war. Um, Colonel Evans, you've been focusing a lot of your research around some of our post-war rehabilitation needs. And so if you could just speak to the shift in how the research mission within the Department of Defense has evolved as a result of the war. Okay, great. Well, the first thing we look at in looking at any research endeavor is the clinical challenges that are faced by our patients and look at how we might be able to address those with research products. And I think that's never been so clear as sitting here in the center where you walk in in the morning, you see your patients, you see what their needs are, you begin to speak with the clinicians, and it's pretty much a hands-on way of determining what the challenges are for our patients and what they really want to be able to achieve, which is basically to achieve the most optimal quality of life they can, even given some very debilitating injuries. So the first step that we take is to talk with the clinicians to identify an area that might be able to address with research. And one of those areas, which has typically been the first thing people look at when they look at injured soldiers, is the area of prosthetics. So being able to look at prosthetic advances and having the funding for those types of research protocols has been critical in getting this moving forward. The changes are that within a military treatment facility, we are now being supported to do research, which we haven't been able to do in the past, right here with our patients in the center and to be able to build that program in a way that affords our patients the best quality of life possible. Thank you. And if you could shed some light on your role in developing a rehabilitation science program at the Center for the Intrepid and how that came about and and what your vision is for that particular program. Sure. Well, it started back in about 2005 when Congress gave us some additional funds to be able to support prosthetic development, but we realized very quickly that the need isn't only in the area of prosthetics, 
but in being able to provide the most optimal state-of-the-art rehabilitation programs possible, which are evidence-based and which then can be brought out to the literature so that everyone, civilians and military alike, can benefit from the products. There have been a lot of research endeavors that have worked towards saving lives, toward providing body armor and other protective devices that are for saving lives, but we're also seeing a lot more patients who have survived with this limb trauma. And I think that that's become very evident over the years that something more was needed in the research area rather than just saving lives. So monies have been provided to go into the gap areas, such as definitive care, the surgical care that is provided by the physicians, physicians' assistants, and then moving on toward other areas that are just now starting to really be funded and explored in the area of regenerative medicine. So regeneration of these muscles, bones, and nerves, and then be able to lead to rehabilitation efforts for those patients is something that really hasn't been done before. Tying this continuum of care in with rehabilitation, in with prosthetics, in with regenerative medicine, with definitive care, with life-saving research. So bottom line, this research endeavor and the clinical endeavors have worked to develop this huge team, which is we're all here to provide a quality of life for our patients. Great. Thanks a lot, Rachel. And then finally, I'm wondering if you can speak to the future of prosthetics and where the research is growing. We've obviously come a, a long ways over the last five years. Oh, we've gone amazing lengths. And the things that our patients are doing now, running, jumping, going up and down stairs, leg over leg, going up and down inclines, out there hiking, those are things that these prosthetic advances are allowing our service members to do that they haven't been able to do with the prosthetics of the past. And then it's also the job of the DOD to say, okay, we've given this to our patients, what's next? And we are also working to fund some very innovative projects, for example, osseointegration. It's where we may not have to actually put a socket on a residual limb, but just as we have dental implants implanted directly into the bone, they're starting work to determine if 10 to 20 years from now, you could just have a post that your prosthetic hooks into and you could latch it on and off just like you do a a ski boot. That's a very distinct possibility. It'll take care of one of the biggest clinical problems we have, which is the socket skin interface problems with fitting and volume changes of the stump that cause friction problems, etc. We're also looking at upper extremity prostheses because we know that a lot of our patients with upper extremity amputations choose not to use their prostheses. So we're trying to develop prostheses that provide more fine hand dexterity, movement that's controlled either by nerves that have been not used within the limb that's gone, but then transferred to other areas where they can actually use those nerve transmissions to run a prosthesis and perhaps even in the future, thought-controlled prostheses. Those are really in their infancy stages right now, but if we want to move prosthetics into the future, we're doing that within the DOD now. I'd like to add something, John, um, if you don't mind. It's a sad but true statement that many medical advances have been made during wartime, but a lot of effort is put forth during this time to try to make improvements. And the improvements that we're seeing in the upper extremity are going to be leaps and bounds over what is currently available for the upper extremity APT. 
part of the reason that the DOD is spending so much time and effort on that is our percentage of upper extremity amputees is almost three times that of the normal American population. When you look at the entire population of amputees across this nation, it's about 7% of the amputee population. We have a 23% upper extremity amputee population. So it's very important for us to make strides in that area. Great. Thank you, Becky, for that insight. Uh, Dr. Darter, um, when I'm down at the CFI, I can't but help be in awe of some of the research technology in the facility and as the biomechanist in the lab. If you could just speak to some of the technology that we have available at the Center for the Intrepid to study some of these problems and perhaps share some of your current research agenda and what you're looking at, in particular, the Karen and how it's used in both research as well as for clinical purposes at the CFI. Well, without a doubt, uh, this lab which I'm part of is truly unique with capabilities that I'm not sure any lab anywhere else in the world can say they have. We really have two main functioning parts. We have a gate lab which functions as a traditional gate lab with motion capture capabilities. What's unique is we have a very large volume in which we can capture a variety of activities. Rachel mentioned slope walking, stair walking. We have a slope which is much longer and we can do a full flight of 16 steps, whereas most conventional gate labs might be able to only do three or four steps. In addition, we have unique terrain pits, one with undulating turf and one with rocks where we can present some real-world challenges within a motion capture quantitative environment. So that's a pretty unique conglomeration of things in one part. And then, as you mentioned, the Cairn system really is the jewel of the lab. There are other Cairn systems out there, but ours is the only dome. And for those people who might be listening who aren't familiar with the Cairn systems, what it is essentially is a dome, which inside of the dome we project about 300 degrees worth of visual input from some projectors. Within that dome, we also have a motion base, which is a large platform, which uses some actuators to create motion in any direction we want, so six degrees of freedom. In the center of that platform is a treadmill, so we can use that as a walking environment. We can use it as uh, with a treadmill off as a stationary platform in which we can do a variety of things, including provide mechanical or visual perturbation. So we really have a unique environment, and as far as patient care, we try to utilize input from the clinicians to develop environments which suit their needs, provide feedback or provide challenging environments where maybe there's an additional cognitive load which impacts performance as they maybe look around an environment trying to cite things or interact with the scene in some way, shape, or form. And then in terms of research, we have some very specific gate performance-related questions that we look to answer. And so we try to challenge our gate and see how performance is modified by either some type of cognitive load or some type of visual or platform perturbation to challenge their walking and see how that influences their walking. If we provide different prosthetic components or different skin socket interfaces, does that modify the performance under those same conditions? And then as Rachel mentioned, the research mission is beginning to branch out away from just solely with amputees and involve people with TBI uh, Rachel alluded to some of the advancements that have taken place, and I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the specific advancements in prosthetics that you see on a daily basis as you encounter these soldiers in the lab. Well, first of all, I always uh, have the disclaimer that the prosthetic components really have improved dramatically, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the tremendous amount of work that all the patients and the therapists put in, because it's really through their efforts that the type of performance they can accomplish is really achieved. 
That being said, the inclusion of microprocessors started before the wars began, but they really have advanced very quickly in the last several years. You're seeing prosthetic components trying to be as responsive as possible and within a step or two try to respond to what the user is doing. So very recently we've begun some testing and are planning testing with some devices which provide powered function. So one of the traditional deficits that one might see in amputees if you are amputated above the knee, the inability to provide active knee extension. So goals such as going up and down stairs have to accommodate the fact that they cannot go step over step, or now there's prosthetic components out there that provide that active function. And the same can be said for people amputated below the knee at the transtibial level. One of the big things was the lack of powered push-off, and now we're having devices which are would be on the market probably soon that we're working with in the lab here to see how that's improving function. And they really do have the potential to normalize function. And for someone to say in the year 2009 that potentially we're looking at normalizing many functions, stairs and slopes and walking on an even terrain would be probably pretty amazed. Thanks for that insight, Ben. And it really is that tripartite role, if you will, of advancements in technology and research combined with highly motivated soldiers and rehabilitation staff who really work together as a team to promote the optimal outcome and getting many of our soldiers back into the fight, so to speak, who otherwise never in previous conflicts would have had the chance to walk again, much less actually be able to return to active duty and live very high-quality lives. So thanks for bringing that up. I'm wondering if any of you have any closing comments to the discussion. My boss, the commanding general, talks about the Center for the Intrepid and the need for us to have strategic communication with the rest of the world as to what the military is able to do and also what we are doing because it is definitely a priority right now to make sure that these warriors and transition folks that have been seriously wounded are returned to optimal performance regardless of whether or not they stay on active duty or whether or not they choose to retire. So I think I can speak for all three of us in saying that it's a pleasure to work here. I don't have to worry about a lot of staff turnover. No, I have to say, from my part, being part of this team has been incredibly rewarding to watch the patients advance, to watch the care that's provided by all the therapists and care providers involved, as well as to work with this research staff here who wants to do whatever they can to optimize care for our patients through research. It's really been a gift to be able to work here. You know, one of the real great privileges is to work with the great people, both the coworkers and the, and the patients. But the thing that really excites me is, in reality, all of the research, all of the clinical advances that are making are very important not only for them but for the general public. The improvements in prosthetic care will certainly transition over to the population of amputees as a whole. And so really the effect that this center is having is profound for the military but really profound for the general population at large. Well, with that being said, I'll wrap things up, and uh, we look forward to another thought-provoking discussion in part two of this podcast as we really get into some of the details of the role that physical therapists and other rehabilitation professionals play in both the post-war setting, so in the rehabilitation environment, as well as in the deployed environments. So thanks to each of you for your time, and I think it's been a very worthwhile discussion this afternoon. Thank Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Part 2 of this series will be available at www.ptjournal.org and on iTunes. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or any other PTJ podcast via email ptj at scienceaudio.net. 
or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.